Well, good morning. We're going to be in Psalm 97 this morning, continuing our series. If you need a Bible, please slip up your hand, and someone from our strike team would love to put one in your hands. Before we read the text today, however, I'd like to ask you a question. What do you think of when you hear the word fear? Just simple word association. What comes to mind when you hear the word fear? A a quick dictionary lookup says that fear as a noun is the feeling or condition of being afraid. If something provokes a response of fear, you might call it scary. Maybe it stirs up images of things you're afraid of. Maybe, Maybe you're afraid of heights. You don't like being in high places. Or maybe you don't like confined spaces. Maybe you don't like spiders. Like my kids. Like they won't even go to the basement because there might possibly be something with multiple legs down there. Picture yourself trapped in a six foot by six foot cube with a glass bottom filled with tarantulas hung over the side of the Empire State Building. Did I go too far? Some of you are already having PTSD, right? A a dictionary will tell you that words like scary and frightened, uh, phobia, afraid, are, are all related to this word fear. But that isn't the only definition. I'd like to look at a at a different definition. Fear can also mean to have reverential awe of something. To have reverential awe. The word reverent means respectful, humble, solemn, worshipful. And and awe is the feeling that accompanies this overused word, awesome. I help coach uh, nine and ten-year-old baseball players. Awesome is a word that is still in the vernacular, which is good for me because there's other words that I don't understand showing my age. But when they use awesome, I'm like, oh, good. I'm, I'm still not, I haven't totally lost all coolness. I get you. But I say overused because we use that word for things that just might be cool, but they aren't truly awe-inspiring. They don't cause our jaws to drop, right? I mean, think about... Think about pizza for a second. I tried to pick something universal. All right, the, the picture the best, just close your eyes if you would, and picture the best slice of pizza you have ever had in your entire life. That's hard. <laughs> That's true. I one time had, a, had a, it was an entire pie sat down in front of me in this tiny little cafe outside of Venice, Italy. It was probably, it's what I think of when I think of like, when someone says really good pizza and I'm like, oh yeah, right? Um, I don't know what yours is. Maybe you like uh, thin, giant slices of New York style. Maybe you like thick, like six inch thick deep dish from Chicago. I don't know what your, Jody gave me an amen. I don't know what you think of when you, when you think that way, but it, it might be good. It, it might be really good. But it probably isn't awesome. What I mean by that, it's not something worthy of worship. Your your jaw might drop a little like, man, I'm really excited to eat that. But you don't just stare like gaping at it for a while, not sure what to do with your life. 
If something is truly awesome, if it's truly jaw-dropping, inspiring, I think it's safe to say that that particular something should produce a good kind of fear, if we're using that definition, a particular shape to our worship. So this morning, through this psalm, I'd like us to consider this idea that the sovereign rule of Christ as king, his righteous judgments, that they shape our worship and according to this psalm, move us toward a pursuit of holiness. And I think we'll find that the right kind of fear, a good fear, is for God's people a source of profound and unshakable joy. And that might seem a little backwards, fear and rejoicing, fear and joy, but, but I don't think so. And I think this psalm helps us get there. So let's read the text together this morning. Uh, psalm 97 is on page 321 of the Bibles that we handed out. Psalm 97, I'm going to read it. It'll be on the screen as well. This is the word of the Lord for us today. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. Verse 7, all worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad and the daughters of Judah rejoice. Because of your judgments, O Lord, for you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Verse 10, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. This is God's holy word made bear fruit in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Like Psalm 96 last week, Psalm 97 has something to say to us about our worship of God, about the priorities and the pursuits of our lives if Christ is our King. The approach of Psalm 96 was to present a picture of God and his work that was grand and glorious and inspiring. And the approach of Psalm 97 seems to look at maybe the flip side of that coin. A picture of God who is grand, yes, but holy and consuming and causes us to tremble. And both pictures are good and healthy for us for a full understanding of who God is, who he's revealed himself to be, and how we're to approach him as both our God and our king. The sovereign rule of Christ as king and his righteous judgment shapes our worship and moves us toward a pursuit of holiness. So we'll look at the psalm in three parts today. The the sovereign rule of God, what it means that God is ultimately sovereign, Verses 1 through 6, the the righteous judgments of God and how that shapes our worship. Verses 7 through 9. And then the call for us to pursue holiness. 
as in response to who God is. And that's the last three verses. So let's look at Psalm uh, 97, 1 through 6, looking at God's sovereign rule. The psalm opens with two phrases. The Lord reigns and let the earth rejoice. The first phrase is very familiar to us. We've brought this one up a lot. It has shown up a lot in the past few psalms. It's the Yahweh Malach. The Lord reigns. The Lord is king. And then the phrase, let the earth rejoice. We just read it last week in Psalm 96, verse 11. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. In light of God's kingship, his kinging, if you will, let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. It's again, in 97, a call to worship. And then just listen to the description that the psalmist continues. He says, Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the people see his glory. This is a almost a kind of ominous picture, isn't it? Now, throughout the Old Testament, God reveals himself in clouds and, and darkness. When speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, recorded in Exodus 20, he covered the mountain with a cloud. And in Deuteronomy 5, when they're recounting God speaking to Moses... This is what is written. Out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, with a loud voice. That's how the Lord spoke to his people. And Solomon says in 1 Kings, the Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. Now, this is a very different call to worship, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, it seems a little off. Can we still rejoice when God reveals himself as sovereign? In this way, not just in glorious works, but also in righteousness and judgment. How are fear and rejoicing connected? Some scholars connect this imagery not just to God, how he spoke to his people in the Old Testament, but to Christ's return, to the final judgment, to the, to the time at the end of all things. When Christ returns and all is made new, the imagery is kind of apocalyptic. It, it, it kind of sounds like Judgment Day. Not the Terminator version, the biblical one. I found this great picture from an English romantic artist named John Martin. Oil on canvas, uh, 1851 or thereabouts. I if, if, hope you can see it. Um, I put the title down at the bottom because I know there are kids in the room and there were a few... I know it's art, but go with me, okay? There were a few pictures that were maybe a little PG-13. But, but just look at it for a second. I, again, I don't know how well you can, can see it, but notice the scale of this painting called The Great Day of His Wrath. The Great and Terrible Day of the Lord. At the bottom, we find these figures all along the bottom, kind of in twisted, tormented positions. 
and what is unfolding before them is this grand scene of utter destruction. Mountains collapsing, lightning shooting in the sky. There's, there's a representative of civilization, bless you, up in the top right. Um, as it looks like some kind of Roman temple is crumbling. The earth is opening up and spewing lava and swallowing up people whole. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus says this, in speaking of the things to come, he says, The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of heaven will be shaken. Verse 30, Then will appear in heaven a sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The tribes of the earth will mourn because they'll see the uh, coming of the Son of Man with power and glory. This is some of that messianic, Jesus, prophetic uh, return language we saw at the end of Psalm 96 as well. If the Lord is king, then he's a sovereign king. We toss the word sovereign around and then maybe sometimes not fully understand what we mean when we say it. It means there is nothing. Nothing in all of creation that is outside of his rule as king. I stole this uh, definition, this little paragraph uh, from Desiring God, talking about God as sovereign king. There are no limits to God's rule. This is what it means. This is part of what it means to be God. He is sovereign over the whole world and everything that happens in it. He is never helpless, never frustrated, never at a loss. And in Christ, God's awesome, sovereign providence is the place we feel most reverent, most secure, and most free. So let me ask, it's one thing to consider and submit to a God who saves, who does great and glorious works on our behalf. But are you sometimes reluctant to consider God's sovereignty in this way. Where do you find it hardest to believe in God's total sovereign rule in all time from now until the end? The Chronicles of Narnia is a favorite in our house. We like, uh, we like our C.S. Lewis. And in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the children are introduced to this idea of Aslan. And that he's a lion. And Mr. Beaver says, because animals talk, by the way, if you haven't read it. Um, Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, says Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous meeting a lion. Safe? Said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's the picture of God's sovereignty, his, his righteousness, his justice, his goodness. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. I think this is how a good and proper fear of God in his sovereignty doesn't cause us to be afraid and shrink back, but to actually turn our hearts to worship. It fuels rejoicing. Because we're rejoicing in God for who he is. 
When we have a proper and reverent fear and awe of God, we find that there is both a security and a freedom there in the total sovereignty of God in Christ our King. That's the the first consideration. The second is this, and we see it in the Lord's actions in Psalm 97. His righteous judgment. Point two, the King's righteous judgment shapes our worship. We find this in verses 7 through 9. We talked a little bit about this week, uh, this last week as well. Verse 13 of 96, for he, we talked about Christ Jesus, comes to judge the earth. And the idols and the false gods of the world are mocked as, as nothings. And here again in 97, these idols are called worthless. And it's an embarrassment. Look at the words used there. All the worshipers, <clears throat> excuse me, the worshipers of images are put to shame. There will be shame for those of us who are found to be worshiping idols when the Lord comes in his terrible glory and judgment. When the sovereign king comes in righteousness, he will expose all the foolishness of idolatry. Let me give you an example from the scriptures and then in real life. From the scriptures, in Isaiah, the Lord is speaking through the prophet Isaiah to, to, to point out the foolishness of idolatry. Like it just, when you look at it on its face, it's just dumb. And, and in Isaiah 44, Isaiah says that there's a man who, who, who cuts down a tree, takes from it a log, Cuts the log in half, and with this half, he, he puts it over a fire and cooks his meal. And this half of the log, he carves into a, a figure and he worships it. This part is fuel. He warms himself, bakes bread, and is satisfied. And this part, he carves into a little statue and, and worships it. He prays to it and asks it to deliver him. And Isaiah says, You guys see how dumb that is, right? You take your log, you cut it in two, half is for fuel, half is for for worship. That doesn't make sense. It's ridiculous. And so I grabbed this morning two coffee cups as an example. Now, I didn't bring a chunk of wood in. I I thought I have, like, logs in my garage I could have brought, but these are made from trees, so go with me. This one holds my coffee. I still have a little in there. This, This wood pulp pressed down, formed into a little paper cup with some glue. And this one is useful to me for holding my coffee. Still warm, drinkable coffee. This one, wood pulp, pressed down with a little glue, formed into a cup. I'm going to pray to that one to deliver me. That's dumb, right? Maybe you're like, yes, Jake, that analogy is dumb. But it's showing the the reality that there's a mockingness to it. It it is foolish. Clearly, they're just both paper cups. Clearly, they're just both chunks of wood. How can one be like fuel for the fire and the other one worthy of worship and and can actually deliver us from from something? Isaiah is mocking the foolishness of worshiping anything other than God. And this psalmist is giving us the same picture of what will happen when the glory of God is revealed and every eye sees him like, wow. Like we, we can say that's, that doesn't make sense. It's silly. And yet the caution is there because we are prone to taking the log and using half for fuel and 
have for worship. Taking the, the cups and being like, this one is useful for something, but this one is my God. So what are the half logs, if I can say it that way, that you and I are tempted to worship? Created things. Even good things. Money. Family. Power. Self. I, I, I doubt that any of you woke up this week thinking, you know what? Today, I'm going to worship myself. Maybe you did. Or money. Or power. But, but an overrealized sense of your right to be happy, more than anything else, might drift into you carving a little idol of your best life now. You, you, you do you. You get what's yours. And you end up worshiping you. Even if you didn't start out that way, you, you end up that way. Or maybe you put too much stock in safety and security and what, what could be wise stewardship becomes stingy and greedy and in no time the dollar amount in your bank account or the status that money can purchase you in the sight of others, that becomes the object of your worship. You didn't set out that way. You didn't tape a Benjamin to your front door and be like, I'm going after that today. I mean, again, maybe you do, in which case we should talk. But, but do you see how we get there? What do you set your worship on? You will become like that. So let me ask, you, you might not have a shrine set up in your house, but examine the objects of your affections and ask yourself, what really is my God? And the last part of this little section is fascinating. Verse 8, Zion hears and is glad and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. There is a rejoicing here specifically because God's judgment is right. All that is wrong and false will be made right in time. And this glancing look at the end of all things when Christ returns in glory and justice is for those who are clothed in Christ's righteousness and covered by his protection, it is a cause for joy. So I don't want you to hear this like Oh, he's ragging on my time and my energy and calling out idolatry. Ooh. I didn't hear anyone actually do that, but it should sting and bring conviction. And by God's grace, we don't stay there because we recognize God's judgment is always right. And so that's a good thing. And it's good for us. In fact, it leads to rejoicing, which we'll get to here in just a second. It's a good thing that everything will be exposed. We have no other hope, right? No hope of hiding. No hope of trusting in something else. We'll sing it in just a few minutes. At least I think we will. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. It's a good thing to get there. It's a good thing for our idolatries to be exposed so that we see God for who He is and we rest all on Him. The reality of the goodness and right judgment of, right judgment of God invites us to trust Him and Him alone. Not just once for salvation, never to think of Him again, but a daily surrender. A daily putting aside of lesser things, ultimately worthless things, the psalmist says, to worship Him. And this belief in God as sovereign King and as righteous judge moves us to our third and final point today, this pursuit of holiness. Look at verse 10. 
O you who love the Lord, hate evil. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. This is a a marker, a, a definition. Let me say it this way. Those who love the Lord hate evil. They reject it. They despise it. We don't just say God is just and one day all falsehood and wickedness will be exposed. Isn't that nice? Can't wait. No, we're called in our worship of God to pursue holiness. There's an active push, hatred, move against what is evil, what is wicked. Now, I was born in 1980. And depending on who you ask, I'm right at the end of Generation X. Some push us further and include us in other. I like this one. We'll just take it. Children of baby boomers. Our lives in the 80s and 90s was marked by uh, the postmodernism that sprung up after World War II in the 60s and 70s. And one of the, the marks of postmodern thought was a renewal of extreme relativism. I just used like 15 $6 words in that, in that paragraph. Here's what I mean. Postmodern thought, which kind of came out of World War II and what was happening in the world at the time, pushed forward this idea that everything was relative. Everything. There's no you know, subjective, uh, authoritative truth. Uh, we don't really know. Everything kind of starts to shift philosophically. Everything's subjective, including notions of right and wrong. Long-held social and cultural uh, ideas of what is good and what is evil. Even those things, kind of, not as much black and white, more just a sliding scale. Today, we've moved even beyond that sense of postmodernism into what is kind of called an era of post-truth. So, so there's, a, there's a renewed idea, well, there might be some subjective truth, because left to like five minutes of real life and relativism starts to fall apart. Like there's got to be some anchors somewhere. And in our current culture, there's a renewal of ideas of some kind of truth. But there's a healthy skepticism toward the traditional structures and systems that determine truth in the past. So when we're looking at this and we read uh, verse 10, O you who love the Lord hate evil, the question has to be asked, who determines what is good and what is evil? How do we determine what's good and what's bad? Pastor Ligon Duncan says this, the line between good and evil is not between political parties and not between classes of people. It's not between nations. What the scriptures are talking about here is it cuts right down to the center of every human heart. And that means, my friend, that we will not be able to pursue good in the world until our hearts are changed. He continues, it takes a divine and sovereign work of the Holy Spirit to change a heart which is totally depraved, affected in all its parts by evil. And it takes a work of God's Holy Spirit regenerating us, giving us new birth. The hatred of evil here isn't just those who love God hate evil out there. What's being said here is those who love God, those of you who belong to him, you hate it everywhere, primarily here. So it's an act of confession 
And it's an act of worship for us to respond to God when we say, yes, your ways are right. Your ways are true. Your ways are better than my ways. I confess my failure to reach them. I lean heavily on Christ Jesus alone to work in me. And I want to pursue what you call good. To bring us from death to life. We don't pursue holiness in order to become acceptable to God. Hear me in that. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, we are called to pursue holiness because in Christ we are made new and are now acceptable. This is a miraculous work of God's grace. And here, look at Psalm 97. We see some gospel promises at work. Look at the benefits for those who love God. He preserves the lives of his saints and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Write that down somewhere. Underline that. Now, that doesn't mean that there will never be pain, that that the wicked will never harm those who are following Jesus. We know that from, from our experience that that's not entirely true in that way. But it does mean that no injustice will remain forever. There will be a time when God miraculously intervenes in the lives of his saints and delivers them. Amen. Amen. And as we read, read in Psalm 91, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. For those in Christ Jesus, we are never outside the care and protection of God from now until we see him face to face. God preserves the lives of his saints and delivers them from the hands of the wicked. That is a sure promise fulfilled in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 2 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin, there's your pursuit of holiness, and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. In the midst of the things we are still currently carrying, physical, emotional, mental, woundings, trials, in Christ, we are complete. That's what Peter's getting at. That's the promise of 97, verse 10. Light is sown for the righteous, he continues, verse 11, and joy for the upright in heart. The phrase here for sown, uh, I don't know how many of you grew up on a farm, uh, sowing a seed, planting it in the ground. The, the phrase here for sown could be read even as light dawns on the righteous. There is no longer a stumbling around in the darkness for, for those who are in Christ Jesus. We no longer fear the justice and the righteous judgment of God because Christ took our punishment on our own. We we should be rightly afraid. If left to myself, to defend myself on the terrible judgment of a holy God, I would lose, and so would you. But in Christ, the, the darkness no longer makes me afraid. Instead, I bow willingly in reverent fear because God is good and holy, and in him I'm secure. Jesus said himself in John 8, I am the light of the world. He said this, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. And First John affirms this in just a moment. We're going to take communion, and the promise we take is that he who walks in the light as he is in the light will have fellowship with God. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. See, worship to God does not spring from observing the world around us. 
It does not spring from the ebb and flow of humanity's goodness or evil toward one another. True and lasting worship of God isn't motivated by a good report from a doctor or a clean bill of health. It's it's, it's not motivated ultimately by a positive happening in our life. Those things can be causes for worship or can be, can be fuel for our worship, but they don't ultimately motivate it and move it. Just as in the same way that, that bad news, tragedy, a hard diagnosis, a much shorter timeline than you were hoping for, doesn't hinder our worship. Or in this case, is encouraging it that it that it doesn't. Worship begins and ends with God who is sovereign. He is always good and our worship then is expressed with reverent fear, a good fear and awe of God. The psalm ends with an imperative, a statement, a command, if you will. Verse 12, after all of that, Verse 12 says, Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to His holy name. The psalmist is telling us, in light of who God is, here's what you do. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to His holy name. If we're going to follow God, if we're going to worship Him rightly, then we have to embrace Him as He truly is. As righteous, as holy, as just, and we have to embrace these truths, these promises that are ours in the gospel. That God is holy, that we are not. That Christ Jesus uh, is reconciling us and all creation to himself. And that this same gospel that saves us is at work in us to bring about sanctification and to set us on a path of obedience and holiness. It is the sovereign rule of Christ, His righteous judgment that shapes our worship. Turning us away from idolatry and moving us toward a pursuit of holiness. And in that there is much, much rejoicing. May this be so in our lives. Amen. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You that you are patient. That you are full of mercy and grace. That even in your righteousness, your holiness, your right judgment, we thank you that we have breath in our lungs today as a reminder of your kindness. So in light of that, would you draw our hearts to, to worship to confess our need of you and to respond appropriately on our faces, reverent. Would you work in us, Holy Spirit, to, to confess and to put aside all kinds of other worthless idols? And would you stir in our heart a rejoicing that cannot, cannot be shaken? Encourage our hearts as we come to the table and free our hearts to praise you for you are good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.